Well, thank you for the songs, brother. Uh, it's uh, hearing a multitude of people sing praises of the Lord is just such a blessing. And so um, that was wonderful. Well, we're once again going to be in Matthew chapter 5, so if you'd turn there, please. Before we get into this, uh, please join with me in a word of prayer to the Lord here. Dear Father, thank you so much once again uh, for giving us your word, a lamp unto our feet and a a light unto our path. Lord, um, we're not lost. We have this word to uh, exhort us and to, to live by. And we thank you, Lord, that you have made yourself known to us through this word and Lord, we just give you all the glory uh, because it's your word and help us, Lord, to understand and uh, really make it a part of our lives and not go away just like one who goes away from a mirror forgetting what he looks like, but help us, Lord, to truly exalt your word in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to be looking at verses 43 through 48. And we now come to the last of the six doctrinal corrections, the six illustrations uh, that Jesus gives. You have heard it said, but I say to you. And we're also at the end of Matthew chapter 5 here. And so this, the end of these illustrations will close out Matthew chapter 5. But it's not the end of the Lord's Sermon on the Mount. We still have a ways to go there. And we have yet another challenging group of scriptures to tackle this morning. And that's an understatement. Anyone who preaches will tell you that uh, oftentimes when you prepare to preach, it really is a struggle. And you struggle over these things and you want to make sure that you're um, not diminishing the word of God in any way, that you're giving glory to God, that you're speaking the right thing. And so I invite you this morning to share in my struggle with this, uh, because this is an important group of scriptures, and this is uh, very challenging, but there there is a clear direction here. And so the Lord helps us to find those if we really take him at his word and, and, and dive deep into it. So let's first start off by reading verses 43 through 48. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you. And persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so. 
Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. These scriptures deal with a perfect standard of righteousness. Just as the other illustrations that the Lord gives, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. These scriptures, this is really the climax of that. These scriptures deal with a perfect standard of righteousness, a perfect love. The continuation of the principle of self-denial that we see in the previous scriptures, what I preached on before. The Lord declares here, Love your enemies. And in that declaration or command, we could say, he brings to climax the aforementioned principles. God's perfect standard of righteousness, God's teaching of his principle of self-denial, and God's perfect love. This is the pinnacle of that. This is the climax. Because if love is the greatest thing, then loving your enemies is the greatest thing love can do. Love is the greatest thing, according to 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Now also the Lord makes this statement here. What do ye more than others? In other words, what sets your religious system apart from all the other world religious systems? From the long list of man-made religions, what, what makes yours any different? What makes it any better? What, why is your standard greater? And these Pharisees, these religious leaders, these uh, religious Jews, they, I mean, the Pharisees were the cream of the crop. They were the elite. They were the, and they, they felt that way about themselves. And everyone looked at them that way. And Jesus is telling them and those who were listening, they're no different than the world. What do ye more than others? Your religion is no different than the world's. But my kingdom is greater. You've heard it said, this is your standard. But I say unto you, this is God's standard. He also said their standard was subpar and unacceptable back in verse 20. When he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. These people were truly looked at as something great to emulate. They were revered. And the people saw them as such. And, and then this statement, you see these guys over here that you revere and think are so great, unless you, your righteousness is better than theirs, you have no part in the kingdom of God. You will not enter in the kingdom of God. The people of God, he's saying, must live by a greater standard. Now this is put forth to them back in Leviticus 18. So let's go there for a minute. And this is what he says, beginning in verse 1. 
And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, I am the Lord your God. After the doings of the land of Egypt, wherein ye dwelt, shall ye not do. And after the doings of the land of Canaan, whether I, whether I bring you, shall ye not do. Neither shall ye walk in their ordinances. Ye shall do my judgments, and keep mine ordinances to walk therein. I am the Lord your God. So you see here, God is saying, this is going to be your standard. My, my word, my ordinances, my laws are going to be your standard. You're not going to, your standard's not going to be like the people in Egypt where you come from, where I brought you out of. And it's not going to be like the people of the land of Canaan where I'm sending you to. Your, your standard is going to be my ways, my word. And notice that this scripture is bracketed, begins and ends with the, the, the statement, the phrase, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. You're not your own God. These, these idols that were in Egypt, they're not God. These idols that, you're, that are going to be in the land of Canaan, they're not God. You're not going to be like them. You have to go... You have to live by my standard. This is the, the right way. This is the truth. And the ways of man and the ways of the world, really they're all the same because there's really only two religions in the world. That's biblical Christianity and the false religion of works. Every false religion of works says the same thing. If your good outweighs your bad, then you'll be uh, accepted by God. And what the Bible says, what biblical Christianity says, what Christ says is you cannot be acceptable to God on your own because the standard is so greater than yourself. And God is saying in Leviticus 18, your standard is to be my holy standard. I am the Lord your God. Now, He gave them this standard he gives them the law that transcends the material and the letter. Because Psalm 19 says the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Now they had made it about the letter. They had made it about a list of things to do. And as long as I don't cross this line, then God will accept me. But the spirit of the law, the heart of the law was always there. To seek justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Those things were already there and they were, in, they were embedded and threaded throughout the law of God, throughout His Word. And so, it, it's not just that they didn't have a standard. Like, you know, well, we have the New Testament, so we think that, you know, we have a greater standard. And the New Testament is a greater and better covenant. But they still had... God's Word, they still had this law that transcended material and the letter. But Israel often forgot their uniqueness, forgot their, their, the standard that they were to live by, the holy standard of the Word of God, just as the church, in many regard, has forgotten it today. So we, are like, we have become just like them from Psalm 106.35.
a sad statement which says, But they were mingled among the heathen and learned their works. They forgot the standard. And they served their idols, which were a snare unto them, a curse. Yea, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters unto devils and shed innocent blood, even the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed unto the idols of Canaan. So what God said for them not to do in Leviticus 18 is the very thing they fell into. And we're not immune to this. It's happened to our own people. There is this thing in, inside of us oftentimes that wants to be like the world, that wants the world to like us, that wants to be friends with the world. But God said, you're not going to be like the Egyptians where you came out of, and you're not going to be like the Canaanites where I'm sending you. We all came from the bondage of sin. We all partook of some form of idolatry before we came to Christ. And so we were brought out of that, just as the, the, the Israelites were brought out of the slavery of Egypt. And we're brought into the, the kingdom of light, God's, God's kingdom. Uh, but we, we live in this world, and so God says the same thing to us. You're not going to be involved in the idolatry that you were in before. And when you're, when, when you're walking in my word and in truth, don't be entangled with the idolatry that's all around you either. But we see the result of churches bowing the knee to be like the world. But the standard is still God's holy truth. There is no human standard that can please God, no matter how good it looks or how lofty it seems. And this really is the main point with all six of these illustrations that the Lord gives. This is your standard, which is substandard. It, it, it doesn't make the cut, no matter how good you think you look or how good you are. But this is the standard of my kingdom, Jesus says. He then finishes these illustrations with the highest principle possible. To love your enemies. The greatest principle we could live by because it encapsulates so much of all the other principles. Love your enemies speaks to God's perfect standard. To love enemies is a, a high, it is the perfection of love. It, it is God's perfect love. Romans 5, 6-8, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God died for us, loved us when we were His enemies. This is how God loved His enemies. 
perfect love on display in the sacrificial cross of Jesus Christ. And this is the same love that he's calling us to, and this is why this is so high a calling. And this is why he finishes the chapter closely after this statement to love your enemies with, be perfect for your Father in heaven is perfect. Loving enemies speaks to self-denial, sacrifice, being willing to be defrauded. Loving enemies speaks to the real fact that God is no respecter of persons. Acts 10, 34-36. This was after God sent Peter to Cornelius. And Cornelius, after hearing the gospel... Uh, is saved in his household. And Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. He is Lord of all. Over every tribe, every nation, no respecter of persons. God loved His enemies in a very real, deep way. And so, the human standard, no matter how much it's revered, it does not come close to this. The standard of the kingdom of God is utter perfection to the point of loving enemies. Now, maybe we are somewhat dulled to that saying. Maybe we're somewhat, uh, we're just so accustomed to hearing that, you know, amongst ourselves and, you know, love our enemies. We know that's something that Jesus called us to do. But it amazes me that although the Bible is multi-millennia old, and no matter how long I've been studying it, I've been studying this word for nearly two decades now, it still has the shock and awe effect that no amount of Hollywood special effects can equal. Because love your enemies? What a shocking statement that is. Let's, let's not be dull. Let, let's not just be calloused to that. Love your enemies. This is way beyond us. This is so far above us. And it cannot be done without the infusion of divine power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the point. You see, the self-righteous always seek to be righteous in and of themselves, apart from God. And this is what they were doing when they were exercising the letter of the law. When Jesus said, oh, you think that you're righteous because you don't murder, because you don't commit the act of murder? But I'm telling you, if you've ever been angry with your brother without a cause, you've already committed murder in your heart. That's the, the high level of, of righteousness that God requires. And he's saying, if it wasn't for the law, you would murder because it's in your heart. The law acts as a restraining force, but you're not righteous because you just simply keep the letter of it. It goes 
deeper than that. And so Jesus is saying, your righteousness is here. God's righteousness is far above and you can't supply it. You cannot supply it. And so he's saying, come to me. Now, just as we've done uh, through these other illustrations, this sixth and final one, let's look at the rabbinical tradition versus the truth of the Word of God. Let's look at where they got this teaching from, and let's go from there. Okay, so first, Jesus starts off, "'Ye have heard that it hath been said, "'Thou shalt love thy neighbor.'" And hate thine enemy. So love thy neighbor. Okay, that sounds good. That's right, isn't it? Where did they get that part from? Well, love your neighbor is only halfway right. They got it from Leviticus 19.18. So we'll go back to Leviticus. And we'll see what they left out. And, And... so thus begins the, the error of the teaching. Leviticus 19.18 says this, a direct command from God. <clears throat> Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people. But thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. Did you notice what was missing? As thyself. They left that part out. You've heard that it hath been said, love thy neighbor. But the command in Leviticus is to love thy neighbor as thyself. If you just love your neighbor, period, and you leave off as thyself, you just created a huge amount of wiggle room. Because you can love your neighbor at a distance. You can show your neighbor some kindness and throw them some... Uh, niceties, but keep the real, you know, good stuff for yourself. But love your neighbor as thyself really closes the door on that. And isn't it amazing how the Word of God knows our hearts and how we would try to deviate around His command and then He blocks it, just like with a door closing shut. Like, no, that's not what I'm saying. It's not just love your neighbor It's love your neighbor as yourself. So these things come from the Old Testament. When Jesus said that, he's not diminishing the law, the prophets. He's putting it forth. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And notice he ends it again. I am the Lord. This is my word. This is not just any kind of word from anyone else that this is this is high this is exalted i am the lord don't mess with my word <clears throat> so apparently the teaching from leviticus 19:18 was altered by rabbinical tradition by dropping as yourself now like i said getting rid of as yourself really changes things 
It really opens the door and, and diminishes the truth of the command a great deal. To love as yourself really speaks to the volume, to the exceeding way that we are to love. Because we love ourselves. You love yourself with an unhypocritical, unwavering, unconditional love. You fed yourself this morning, you'll feed yourself later. You put clothes on yourself. You constantly seek your own comfort. Um, you love yourself. You don't need to be taught to love yourself. You don't need to be told to love yourself. You see, the, see how the world is in such contrast with God. The world says, you just need to love yourself. You just need to believe in yourself, the, word sa- or the world says. But God says, no, you need to deny yourself. And take up your cross and follow me. Because you already love yourself. You love yourself unconditionally. And so saying to love your neighbor as yourself, that really puts it into perspective. That really actually puts the command unattainable. That, we, that there's no one that could deny that this, this addition of love your neighbor as yourself, this requires a dependency on God. This requires a dependency of a power greater than within ourselves. And so there is no righteousness within ourselves unless we alter the standard, which is what they did by dropping as yourself. They figured, well, that's too hard. We can't meet that standard. What do we do? Well, we'll just change it a little bit. We'll drop as yourself, and then we'll love our neighbor how we see fit. This also is compounded as a problem because they make it to where they get to be the ones to define neighbor and enemy. They could define it on their own terms, and that's why God ends the statement with, I'm the Lord. This is my word. These are my terms. It's amazing how often you see that in the Old Testament. I'm the Lord your God. This is what I say. I'm the Lord your God. They also left out what we find later in Leviticus 19 that pertains to the second part of what Jesus said in verses 33 through 34, which says this, And if a stranger sojourn with thee in your land, you shall not vex him, but the stranger that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one born among you, and thou shalt love him as thyself. Amazing. For ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. How does he end the statement? I am the Lord your God. This is the standard. This is the love that you're called to. I am the Lord your God, he says. Don't alter it. Keep the standard. And come to me when you fall short of that standard. And so, if a stranger with thee in your land, ye shall not vex him. But the stranger that dwelleth with you shall be as one of yourselves, and, and thou shalt love him as thyself. For ye were strangers in the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. So not just a neighbor, but also a stranger, meaning a non-native Jew. 
or one that's non-native to them, not a Jew. You are to love how? As yourself. This is not um, nothing new. I mean, the, the Pharisees would have known these scriptures. In fact, you know, after all, they're doctors of the law. Now let's get into the hate thine enemy part. Where did they get that one? This is where it gets a little more tricky. And this is where we have to rectify the Word of God. Or we don't have to rectify it, but we need to understand how it's rectified and how this all works together. And this is what I mean. They didn't get that from the Scriptures, number one. There's no Scripture that explicitly says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You won't find that in the Old Testament, in all the Bible. There's no command to hate enemies. You see, first of all, men do not need to be taught to hate. The natural man easily hates. He hates without a real cause, for vain reasons. He hates for personal vendettas. And the natural man easily justifies hate. So given enough leeway, given just a little nudge in that direction, they would even find ways to justify hatred within their religious system, within the law of God. Even though there's things that explicitly says not to hate your neighbor, not to even hate a stranger. So let's look at some of the things in Scripture that was probably used to justify hating enemies because we have to be honest here. There are some things in the Old Testament, uh, especially what we'll look at the imprecatory Psalms, that seem like hating your enemy is almost okay. But it's really not so. Some of these things on the surface would possibly make it seem like you know, hating an enemy is justified, but we have to look deeper than the surface. And we, almost, we must take the full counsel of the Word of God. That's what I meant by reconciling the two. The full counsel of the Word of God, not cherry-picking scriptures. You know, people do that. So let me be clear again. Nowhere in the Old Testament do we find love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But we do find, and we have several statements regarding the issue. We do have several statements in the Old Testament that may have encouraged the teaching. That there may have been a misunderstanding and then that just got carried away, you see. And Jesus corrects it in the Sermon on the Mount here. So let's look at a few of these things that may have been misunderstood or that they saw as encouraging them to hate their enemy. Uh, When the Israelites entered the promised land, they were commanded by God to wipe out the Canaanites, 
to completely exterminate them, not spare any of them. They did not do this, even though they should. They should have because God commanded it. He commanded it because He was cleansing the land of sin for His people. Because they were set to inherit it. And He desired His people to be blessed in the land. And that's hard to do when sin is just totally corrupting your land. We know that, don't we? I mean, sin is slowly corrupting every facet of our nation. So there was a call this morning to pray for our nation. Because we know we can't live blessed in a nation that's totally corrupt and getting more corrupt by the day. I mean, we can, we can sit here for a while, pretend like everything's fine, and just carry on with our lives. But there will come a time, there will come a day when calamity will strike because of sin, because that's just, that's the way it is. Sin is a curse. And so God was desiring to cleanse the land from that curse so that his people would be blessed. And so he brought judgment on the Canaanites. And he's allowed to do that because he's God. How dare we counsel God in any way? So he was also executing his judicial wrath on the Canaanites because of their horrible sins. God was not out for a personal vendetta against them, you see. It wasn't personal at all. And this is the issue. It's the judicial decree and the personal relationships, just like we talked about before. And we'll get into more of that. Let's look at Ezra 9, 11 through 12, which says, Which thou hast commanded by thy servants, the prophets, saying, The land unto which ye go to possess it, it is an unclean land, with the filthiness of the people, with the people of the lands, with their abominations, which have filled it from one end to another, with their uncleanness. Now therefore, give not your daughters unto their sons, neither take their daughters unto your sons, nor seek their peace or their wealth forever, that ye may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever." This is God being concerned for His people and their future. God loved the Canaanites. But they they went their own way. And they were totally encapsulated with sin to the point of just pure wickedness. Horrible things. So this is God being concerned for His people and their future. And He's telling them, do not help sin thrive. Don't be an aid to sin. No, He says, don't give your daughters to their sons. And don't take their sons to your daughters. Don't seek peace their peace, or their wealth. Because if you do, it will overcome you, and then you'll be just like them. And God doesn't want that. He doesn't want us to be 
brought under the submission or under the power of sin. So time after time, what you will see in each of these situations is that God is primarily concerned with two things. The well-being and the condition of His people and His own holiness. God is concerned with His own holiness. That's primary, first and foremost. This is not a justification, though, of personal vendettas and personal hatred in your relationships one-on-one to one another. But that's what they had made it about. Just like the issue with eye for an eye. You, they got me, I'm going to get them back. No, that was for the law courts. Eye for an eye was for the law courts. Jesus uh, pointed it back to that. He said, but I say unto you, no, not eye for an eye, but if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to them to the left also. There's a differentiation between a judicial matter and how you're to act in your personal relationships. And here's why. Because in a judicial setting, there's a judge. And he's pronouncing guilt, the punishment. You don't act like a judge in your personal relationships with one another. No, we're called to love, even our enemies. Now we warn of the judgment of God. That's loving to do. That's loving to do. So this, these were not um, justifications for personal hatred or individuals. But you see, the natural man gravitates to that. Oh, you see, he did that. So that means I must be able to, to really just go after him and hate him and, and be self-righteous over them. But that's not the case. There's a different situation here going on in the judicial realm and the personal realm. Now, the more challenging to reconcile with love your enemies is what I mentioned before. It's what we call the imprecatory psalms. Now, these are the psalms where David is calling on God to bring down judgment and wrath upon his enemies. Or he is sometimes cursing them. So what about that? Well, you know, David prayed and asked God to you know, bring calamity on these people. So how do I reconcile that with love enemies? Well, it's pretty clear. And I, like I said, this, I'm inviting you to share in my struggle here. Because this, this is a real struggle that many Christians have. This is, in some cases, a roadblock, truly, to understanding God's love. But it's become quite clear to me now. And the Word of God, the Spirit of God, has really shown forth His truth through this. So these imprecatory psalms, how does that, how does that work with love your enemies? The imprecatory psalms have been used to justify hatred of enemies and have been the subject of confusions or confusion for Christians uh, to reconcile them with Jesus' command to love enemies. Like with other challenging subjects in the Bible, the confusion comes in because of sin and how it corrupts our thinking. 
There are many of these types of psalms. But let's look at one example in Psalm 69. But again, the confusion comes in because our thinking gets corrupted by sin. And so there's a, there's a pull to something. And boy, if we can justify it, we will. Let's look at Psalm 69. This is considered one of the major imprecatory psalms. And so we're just going gonna, gonna to read the whole thing here. It's not too awful long, but... <clears throat> Save me, O God, for the waters are come in unto my soul. I sink deep mire where there is no standing. I am coming to deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary of my crying. My throat is dried. Mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies, wrongfully are mighty. Then I restored that which I took not away. O God, Thou knowest my foolishness, and my sins are not hid from Thee. Let not them that wait on Thee, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed for my sake. Let not those that seek Thee be confounded for my sake, O God of Israel, because for Thy sake I have borne reproach. Shame hath covered my face. I am become stranger. I become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. For the zeal of Thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach Thee are fallen upon me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that was to my reproach. I made sackcloth also my garment, and I became a proverb to them. That they sit in the gate, they that sit in the gate speak against me, and I was the song of the drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is unto thee, O Lord, in an acceptable time. O God, in the multitude of thy mercy, hear me in the truth of thy salvation. Deliver me out of the mire, and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from them that hate me, and out of the deep waters. Let not the water flood overflow me. Neither let the deep swallow me up, and let not the pit shut her mouth upon me. Hear me, O Lord, for thy loving kindness is good. Turn unto me according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, and hide not thy face from thy servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Draw nigh unto my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of mine enemies. Thou hast known my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. Mine adversaries are all before thee. Reproach hath broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. And I looked for some to take pity, and there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Let their table become a snare before them. And that which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened that they see not, and make their loins continually to shake. Pour out thine indignation upon them, and let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their habitation be desolate, and let none dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom thou hast smitten, and they talk to the grief of those whom thou hast wounded. And add iniquity 
unto their iniquity. And let them not come into thy righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. But I am poor and sorrowful. Let thy salvation, O God, set me up on high. I will praise the name of God with a song and I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bullock that hath horns and hooves. The humble shall see this and be glad, and your heart shall live that seek God. For the Lord heareth the poor and despiseth not his prisoners. Let the heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moveth therein. For God will save Zion and will build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and have it in possession. The seed also of his servants shall inherit it. And they that love his name shall dwell therein. This is a beautiful psalm and a heart cry to the Lord for strength and rescue. And there is some, some calling down wrath here. Pour out thine indignation upon them, he says. There's also some things that you would notice that pertain to the Lord Jesus. And so this Psalm 69 is a heart cry from David. But it's not personal. It's not about him. I want you to notice something in verse 9. Why is he angry? Why is he upset? For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. And the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. He's being hated because of God's name. And he's upset not because they're hating him or slighting him. He's upset because they are dishonoring his God. The zeal of thine house, O Lord, hath eaten me up. You see, it's not personal to him. His hatred... His calling on God's judgment isn't just because somebody was mean to him or slighted him or he didn't like how somebody looked at him or these pity vain things like that. He truly had a broken heart because the people around him, it's not they're hating him, they're hating God, they're dishonoring God. He didn't care about himself. It was over God's glory and God's name. And that ought to be our heart cry. Let us say, the zeal of thy house, O Lord, hath eaten me up. I am concerned about your kingdom. Let them do what they want to to me. But I'm not going to stand for someone dishonoring my God. I'm not going to stand by and just not do anything or not say anything. No, I will exalt the Lord. Robert Godfrey says that it is not illegitimate to use the imprecations of the Psalms to pray for judgment on God's enemies. In fact, every time we pray, come Lord Jesus, quickly, we're praying an imprecation on God's enemies. Because you know what's going to happen when, when Jesus comes, right? 
judgment is going to follow him. He's going to bring judgment on God's enemies. So we're praying a similar imprecatory thing when we say, come Lord Jesus quickly. Because we want to see God's name vindicated, do we not? And this is the same heart that David had. Godfrey also speaks on how Paul tells us about how loving our enemies will further increase their punishment. You heap coals of fire on their head when you do good to them. So setting love of enemy radically over God's justice and judgment is unbiblical. And so there are two ditches that we can fall into. But there is an answer. There is an answer to how we reconcile love your enemies with God's judgment. God's judgment like we find on the Canaanites and with the prayers and words of David in the imprecatory Psalms. And again, the key is found, and let's look at it again, in verses 7 through 9 of Psalm 69. Because for thy sake... He says, I have borne reproach. Shame hath covered my face. Because I seek to honor you, Lord, I have borne this reproach. I have become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. I'm forsaken, Lord, because I seek to honor you. For the zeal of thine house has eaten me up. And reproaches of them, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. And brothers and sisters, is this not the Lord Jesus? He was hated without a cause because he exalted the name of God. Because he tore down the standard of man and lifted up the, the standard of God. And he wasn't afraid. The first perfect man that ever entered into our realm, the world killed him. You see, this is not about personal hatred or personal vendetta in the precatory, in the precatory Psalms. It's not, a, it's not about that against individuals. This is about God's honor. David doesn't say, God, they've hurt me. They've done me wrong. Now punish them. That's not what he says at all. No, he says, God, they dishonor you. They set themselves above your kingdom. It's never about hatred and personal relationships between ourselves and another person. No, we must love our enemies. But our hatred goes out toward the things on a spiritual level to all that exalts itself above the kingdom of God and above Christ. I hate the Roman Catholic Church. I hate it. Because it inevitably exalts itself above Christ and it preaches another gospel. But I love the individual Catholics. You see the difference? 
even though they may identify with that corrupt system, I love the individual Catholics and I seek their reconciliation with God. Let's look at Psalm 139. Verses 21 through 22. Listen here, church. David again says here, Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? And am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. I hate them with perfect hatred. You see here, it's not, I hate them with a personal hatred. No, he hates them with a perfect hatred. A right hatred. He says, I count them mine enemies. So you see here, understand this. This is one thing we often uh, overlook. When Jesus says to love your enemies, he's directly implying you have enemies. And who are those enemies? Well, for the Christian, it's those that exalt themselves above God. It's it's the system, the world that, that comes in and preaches hate against Christ. This is why I won't send my kids to public school. Never. I'm not going to send them somewhere where they're systematically taught to hate God. So who are the enemies? David says, these are the ones I count as my enemies. Your enemies, God. It's not just somebody that I don't like. Or somebody that's different than me from another country or speaks another language. It's those that hate God are our true enemies. And then you can actually love your enemies. If you know who they are, if you have a clear distinction on a personal level, not a spiritual level, but on a personal level, on a practical level, we cannot truly love enemies if we just seek to make everyone our friend. So that's not the point. We miss the point when we just, oh, well, that means to be nice. Love your enemies, that just means to be nice to everybody. Listen, there's a difference between loving someone and liking someone. There's a difference between loving your enemies and liking them. Is there not? We can show them love and kindness and all these things that God wants us to do, and we can do that from a pure heart with the help of the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean that I treat them the same way as I would a brother, a brother in Christ. Because listen, we have this to deal with also from Galatians 6.10. So let me me add this. I didn't write it down, so I've got to turn to it really quick.
And he says there, As ye have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially them unto them who are of the household of faith. And so you see here, there, there is a difference, there's a distinction. And so, there's also the love for the brethren, the intimate love that we must have for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is not to be overshadowed by the love of enemies, or the love for enemies. But the love for enemies is, ought to be practical. And, and, and true, and love them as ourselves in practical ways. So, we must view certain people as enemies, and yet still love them. And that makes it even more difficult, even more challenging. And so, just like the Pharisees dropped um, as yourself... The church has altered the teaching too. Well, we'll just make it easier by making everybody our friends. That's not what the Word is saying. Notice the hatred from Psalm 139 is a perfect hatred, not a personal hatred. It all has to do with God's honor. And we must detract ourselves out of the equation. We also must remember, and this is important, that God seeks to reconcile His enemies to Himself. Is that not what He did with us? If you're a Christian today, you were an enemy of God. By nature, we're enemies of God. We're not born Christians, we're born sinners. God seeks to reconcile His enemies to Himself. He calls all men everywhere to repent, Acts 17. God does not delight in the punishment of the wicked, Ezekiel 33, 11. We see this in the book of Jonah. God went to great lengths to seek out Nineveh's repentance. We're talking about Nineveh. Heinous, corrupt, sinful nation did abominable things in God's sight. And God sought their repentance even though Jonah despised it. Jonah was in error because he did not hate Nineveh with a, with a perfect hatred, like David wrote about. It was personal to Jonah. He didn't like them. He did not want to see them spared the wrath of God. He, in fact, after Jonah preached in Nineveh, even though he didn't want to, and Nineveh did in fact repent, and God stayed His hand of judgment on Nineveh, Jonah said that he wanted to die. Talk about making it personal. That's the error. But God loved Jonah, and God loved the Ninevites. And this is what God said in Jonah 4.10-11. Listen. Then said the Lord to Jonah, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for the which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night, and perished in a night. And then God says this, And should, I, should not I spare Nineveh, that great city wherein there are 
more than six core thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and also much cattle. God understood that Nineveh, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't know. They didn't know their right hand from their left. They were totally lost. And God says, should I not have mercy on them? I mean, these are people created in the image of God here. So Jonah was in the area, in the error. And God loves you, even if you're rejecting Him today. It's not the same intimate love that He has with His children. Because if you reject it, it can't be the same. But it is a love that reaches out, that seeks and desires to pull you out of the mire, out of sin. But His reaching out to you in love will not negate His wrath. You hear people say that all the time in objection to Christianity. Well, if God is so loving, why would He send people to hell? Because that's not all that God is. God is first and foremost holy. And there is, there is a separation there between the, the personal desire that God has and the, and the judicial pronouncement that God has already made, that there is coming a judgment. Flee from the wrath now. He's made a way. And as it says in Hebrews chapter 2, I believe, how are you going to fare if you neglect so great a salvation? That's the love of God. Remember Romans 5 that I read to you. God commendeth His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. There is... There is this call, Acts 17. God calls all men everywhere to repent. No respecter of persons. He desires the salvation of all men. His reaching out to you in love will not negate or supersede His judicial judgment on the wicked. And this finally clicked with me in studying this. That's why we see, sometimes there's this objection that people see, oh, well, there's, there's two different gods here. There's one God that's angry all the time in the Old Testament, and there's one that's just so loving and meek and mild in the New Testament. They're the same God. It's just there is a judicial side of things, and then there's a personal side of things. And in the person of Jesus Christ, we get to see the image of the invisible God, His, His personal relationship to us, that God came down to be with us, that He cared this much for us, but it won't negate His judgment. It's the same God that brought fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah for the sin of homosexuality. It's the same God. Jesus is coming back as a conquering king. The acts, you see, there's a pronouncement that's already given, that there's coming a judgment. The axe is already laid at the root, the Bible says. The axeman is already in full swing, and he's about to strike. And the only way to avoid it is to get out of the way. By running to Christ. And the love of God is viewed there because Christ has promised to shield you. And He alone can shield you. When someone is cruel, 
toward us, hates us personally, even persecutes us for the sake of Christ, we are not to respond in kind. We're not to repay evil for evil. We're to love our enemies. Knowing the judgment of the Lord that awaits them, warning them, caring for their soul. This, friends, is being like God. That's how God is. But let us have this in our hearts. The zeal of His house must eat us up. We must, not, we must take our stand for Jesus and not back down. Well, there's going to need to be more to this, but the Lord bless you as you consider these words from, from His Word. And I pray that you will pray about these things and consider these things. Well, God bless you. You're dismissed.